following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We are in a series on Isaiah. And uh, if you've been following along the series, then uh, there's a Bible reading plan that goes along with that. And if you're following it on the Bible app, then I just want to say, keep going. Uh, you're doing well, keep it going. Keep reading. Uh, if you're just reading at the, at the same pace as the messages and, you, and you're sort of tracking along, then that's great. However you want to do it, but we're really encouraging you with this series. And if you're listening online and you're not here today, keep reading. Keep reading through Isaiah. Uh, this is good for two reasons. One, because it makes it more of an impacting series for you, and it's not just me talking at you on a Sunday morning, but you're reading this, and then you're, you're more familiar with what's going on. And secondly, it just gets you reading your Bible, which is a great thing. I mean, this basic discipline of the Christian life, which is so often neglected, really important, and to do that as part of a series with your brothers and sisters, reading through a book of the Bible is just a wonderful way to get into a daily habit of ingesting the Word of God. So keep on reading and tracking through. I know there's some hard parts in Isaiah, but just keep pushing through, keep reading, and uh, just trust that God will encourage you through what you read. Okay, so this morning we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 7, and Jane Hepburn is going to come and read this passage for us. So thank you, Jane. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezan of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shear Jasuf, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool, on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, and the son of Ramaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only risen. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? 
Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and right and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Thank you, Jane. All right, so if you've been tracking through the series with us so far, you might notice that this chapter is a little bit different to what we've uh, looked at this far. Most of Isaiah, and certainly the chapters that we've looked at so far, uh, tend to be prophecies. So these words that Isaiah speaks, these oracles that he speaks to the people of Judah, the word of the Lord, that's most of what Isaiah is for the 66 chapters. But occasionally, like this chapter here, you get something different. And what we have here is a story. So as you read this chapter, it, it sort of feels like less like prophecy and more like history. And what we're reading is this historical account of something that happens between Ahaz, one of the kings of Judah, and Isaiah, the prophet. And there's still prophetic words in here. There's still Isaiah's words spoken, God speaking through him to Ahaz. But this is really an historical story. And so it kind of takes us into the, the situation, some of the context that's going on around Isaiah's ministry, some of what's happening in the background. And I think part of the reason that this story made it into Isaiah, it's one of the very few stories in Isaiah. And, and part of the reason for that, I think, is that the more that I've looked at this, the more that, that I can see myself in Ahaz. And the more that I can see that Ahaz, King Ahaz, is a lot like us in the way that he responds to things, in the way that he relates to God, in the way that he deals with his situation, in the way that he hears from God and responds to that word. I think he's a lot like a lot of us in the way that we tend to respond and react and relate. So Ahaz is it's kind of here as a mirror image of our lives. And so as we go through the story, just think of it like that, even though I know this is a story from almost 3,000 years ago, but, but think of the ways in which Ahaz is a little bit like you and you are a little bit like him. And that way we can hear this word that God spoke to Ahaz being spoken to us, into our lives. We can hear it afresh today and be led to that deeper place of trusting and depending on God. So let's walk through the story. As, as it opens here, and if you've got your Bibles open in Isaiah 7, as the chapter opens, there's the sense of a national crisis. We're kind of thrust into a national crisis in the nation of Judah, this small little nation. And you've got these other two nations that are kind of ganging up on it, Israel and Aram. The, those two nations have combined to attack the nation of Judah. They're coming against it. They've already attacked once. They've already attacked Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. First time it wasn't successful and they've pulled back, but it's only a matter of time now before they attack again. And so there's this imminent threat that these two enemy nations are going to come and conquer and destroy the city and, and, and destroy its people. And this, this is the threat that Ahaz, the king, is living with. This is the threat that everyone in Jerusalem is living with. And we're told that Ahaz and the people are shaken they're shaken like trees in the forest, are shaken like the wind. Kind of sounds a bit like today, doesn't it? 
People being shaken, this idea, you know, they're just, they're, they're scared. They're terrified. They don't know what to do. And so Ahaz, King Ahaz decides on a particular strategy of responding to this. Now, we don't, we don't read about this strategy in Isaiah. We read about it in 2 Kings, which is the parallel book, and it gives you some of the backstory to what's going on during the reign of Ahaz. And what we discover there is that when this happened, when Israel and when Aram attacked and threatened Judah, what Ahaz did is he decided to appeal to the king of Assyria, another nation, a big hostile empire to the northeast of Judah. And he decided to go and appeal to the king of Assyria. And he said, I am your servant. I am your vassal. And I will do whatever you want. Just please come and protect me from these other two nations that are attacking me. He wanted Assyria to come and attack Israel and Aram so that they would be stopped from attacking Judah. And so he even, Ahaz even took some, some treasure, some silver and gold out of the treasury of the Lord, out of the Lord's temple to give to the king of Assyria, to plead with him to intervene. So Ahaz here is trying to build this political alliance with Assyria to try and fend off the attack from Israel and Aram. That's kind of the backstory of what's going on. Now, while all this is happening, while Ahaz is waiting for the king of Assyria to get back to him and return his call, Ahaz goes for a walk one day. He goes for a walk outside the city and he goes for a walk to inspect the water supply of Jerusalem. And so he's out by the aqueduct. This is, this is what carries the water into the city of Jerusalem, these big aqueducts, big pipelines coming in. And he's out there inspecting it. You know why? Because he's worried that if, if that water supply gets affected, I mean, if these enemy nations are able to cut off the water supply to Jerusalem, then it's game over, right? If, you, if your city doesn't have water, you can't survive. So he's out there probably with some of his officials inspecting the aqueduct inspecting the water supply of the city. And it's while Ahaz is out there that he meets Isaiah. And Isaiah comes to him with a word from the Lord. This is what Yahweh says. He basically says, I know Ahaz, you've got all your advisors. I know you've got all your own prophets to tell you what you want to hear, but let me tell you what Yahweh says. And it basically comes down to this. You don't need to worry. You don't need to be afraid. This, this threat that you are so panicked about is not going to happen. These nations that you're so terrified of, Israel and Aram, I know they seem like big dogs. I know they seem like they're really fierce and they're going to be the end of you. You don't need to worry. That These are just smoldering stumps of firewood is how Isaiah, how God describes them. You don't need to worry about these nations, Ahaz. This is not going to happen. The, the fear, the threat that you worry about is not going to come to pass. And Isaiah finishes that section by saying to Ahaz, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. That's verse, end of verse 9. If you do not stand firm in faith, you will not stand firm at all. In other words, Ahaz, this is a time to trust in Yahweh, the Lord, the sovereign God. This is a time to place your faith fully and squarely upon him. Because if you don't do that, Ahaz, then you're not going to stand at all as king, as a nation. You're going to be blown away by the storm that's coming. This is a time for faith. And then Isaiah goes a little bit further. God goes a little bit further with Ahaz and he invites Ahaz to ask him for a sign. He says, Ahaz, I'm, I'm promising you this deliverance. I'm promising you this hope. And, and I'm inviting you now to ask for a sign. Ask for any sign. Ask for a sign to confirm that what I've said is going to happen. Any sign you like. And here's how Ahaz responds in verse 12. He says, I will not ask. 
I will not put the Lord to the test. And that, on the, on the face of it, that sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? Sounds very pious. Sounds like he's taking the high road. But in fact, all that's happening really there, that's just, he's just masking his own lack of faith. That's just a thin veneer for his own lack of faith. Because it's not, it's not testing God to ask for something he's already promised you. You know, God's promised deliverance. And then he's invited Ahaz to ask for a sign. So that's not testing God. Testing God would be to demand something God hasn't promised. Yes? Testing God would be to try and pry something out of God's hand that God has never offered you in the first place. But God says, Ahaz, I want you to ask for a sign. I w- ask for anything. I- I'm inviting you. I'm- I've made a promise. I'm inviting you. I want you to ask for a sign. This is not testing God. This is just taking God up on his offer. But what it really reveals is something about Ahaz's heart and where he's already put his trust, that he's already put his faith and his trust in Assyria rather than in God. He's already made his decision. That's what's going on here. Ahaz has already put his money on Assyria. He's built an alliance. He's got an allegiance. And he doesn't want to ask for a sign now. He doesn't want to go down that path because that takes him further towards the God road. And he doesn't want to go that road. He wants to go the Assyria road. He's put all his money on that. And now he's trusting Assyria to come through because he thinks that's his best bet against the threat he's facing. So God doesn't kind of directly address that, but he just plows on anyways and says, well, Ahaz, I'm going to give you a sign regardless. I'm going to give you a sign. I'll tell you what the sign is going to be. And here it is. This will be familiar to many of you in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That sound familiar? It's starting to sound like Christmas. Yeah, and, what, and in our minds, most of us race ahead to Christmas and we think Jesus, but let's just take a minute to understand what's going on in its original context here because in the first instance, this is not about Jesus. This is about a child that's born in Isaiah's day because that's the, it's the context. Isaiah's speaking to Ahaz. This is about what's right in front of him. It's about the immediate situation. And even the word virgin in that verse, it simply means a young woman of marriable age. The word simply means a young woman of childbearing age. So Isaiah is not specifically talking about an immaculate conception. He's not talking about a miraculous birth in that sense. He's simply saying there's going to be a child who's born to a young woman, and that child's going to be a sign. That child is going to be called Emmanuel, which means, of course, God with us. And that child, the very birth of that child, will be a sign that God is with his people. Now, we don't know exactly who this child was in the immediate context, Possibly it was Ahaz's child. Could have been. We don't know. The point is the child will be a sign that God is with his people, that he will step in, that he will bring hope, that he will bring deliverance, and that he will deal with these nations that Ahaz is so worried about. Emmanuel. And this is exactly what happened. Within a few years, those two nations that Ahaz was so concerned about were wiped out. They were wiped out by Assyria. Israel fell to the Assyrians, and history plays out exactly what God prophesies here, that Judah never never needed to be concerned about that attack, about that threat, because these nations were taken care of. But the passage ends with a word of warning to King Ahaz. It it, it, it ends with a word of judgment, really, upon Ahaz. In verse 17, God says, The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. In other words, the very nation 
that you have made an alliance with is eventually going to turn on you. You think that you can buddy up to Assyria now, and in the short term that might work, but eventually that very nation is going to turn and devour you. And again, history plays it out. This is exactly what happened. Assyria dealt with Israel. Assyria dealt with Aram. But then after that, it just turned its sights on Judah and caused all sorts of problems for the nation of Judah. Assyria didn't have these loyalties at all that Ahaz thought Assyria did. And so there's a word of rebuke to Ahaz for putting his trust in Assyria rather than in God. God says eventually that nation's just going to gobble you up. That alliance you're building doesn't mean anything to the king of Assyria. He'll do what serves him and you'll be punished for not trusting in the Lord. Now, that's a story from a, a very different culture and a very different time. And I know it's, it's easy. We feel that kind of cultural distance with this story. But as we talk through it, can you start to see any connections between Ahaz, this king, and the way he behaves and the way he carries on and our lives today, the way we tend to relate to situations, the way we tend to respond to our circumstances? You think about how the story starts. It begins, Ahaz is in a crisis. There's a national crisis, and that's a personal crisis for Ahaz, and he's shaken. He's shaken to his core. He's shaken like a tree shaken by the wind. And we have things in our lives that happen that shake us. We've got things happening in our world that shake us. There's a lot of people at the moment fearful and anxious and afraid because of coronavirus. And I know we don't want to buy into the panic and the hype and all of that, but this is the lived experience of a lot of people who are, afraid, who are feeling shaken. They're feeling exactly like Ahaz felt. They're feeling like a tree that's just blown and tossed in the wind. They don't know. They're fearful about where this is all going, fearful about what's happening, fearful about the repercussions of all of this. And maybe something else for you at a personal level that's shaking you to your core. It may be the loss of a job. Maybe you saw it coming. Maybe you didn't see it coming. But something that seems so stable for you in your life suddenly is taken away and it just leaves you feeling unstable and insecure. Maybe the loss of a family member, someone that was such, such a presence in your life, such a loving and important presence, and then suddenly that person's taken away. And something that felt so stable just feels now so insecure. And, and, and there's this instability and insecurity there. Maybe a financial crisis that you're going through. And what happens with these things is there's like a piece of life that we come to lean on that we've come to kind of put our, put our faith in, and we thought it was always going to be secure. And we look around the world, and we, we thought things were always just going to kind of hum along the way it was always humming along. And, and you know, the global economy would generally be fine, and, and health would generally be okay. And then when things start to get shaky, then suddenly it's like the ground that we're standing on just feels like it's sinking sand. Suddenly there's this instability, and we're like, well, what's happening? I don't feel secure anymore. Things that I used to put my trust in, that I used to put my confidence, that I thought were just going to always be the way they were, suddenly now seem like they're getting unstable. And it leaves us with that sense of being shaken to our core. And it's in those moments, it's in these moments, that we face the same choice that Ahaz faced. See, Ahaz ultimately had to decide, was he going to place his faith in God or was he going to place his faith in Assyria? Now, Assyria is not around anymore, but we've got plenty of Assyrias that we continue to put our faith in. Because when we face that decision of where am I going to put my trust? Where am I going to put my faith? One of the places that we go is we put our faith or our trust in a person, 
And we get into these crisis situations. Our lives get into trouble. Things happen. Things come against us. And we feel like, okay, I need, I need someone. I need someone. I need a really good lawyer. I need a really good doctor. I need a really good consultant. I need a really good therapist. Whatever it is, you know, whatever the expertise is, I need a really good financial advisor. And by the way, it's good to talk to these people. Right? They are there for a reason. We should draw on the wisdom that is there in the people around us. The problem is I think we come to people like this, people of expertise, and we place the full weight of our lives upon them. And we place our full burdens in their hands as if they can bear that, as if that's the way God expected our problems to be dealt with. And we place the full trust in, into the hands of another person. That's never what they're there. People can give advice. People can help. But they're not there for us to totally cast our burdens upon another human being. The other strategy I think we have is then turning to ourselves and just toughing it out. You know how we do this sometimes? And you face difficulties in life and you're like, I, I am just going to summon all the energy I've got and I'm going to slog this out. I'm going to deal with this. I'm smart. I'm resilient. I'm tough. I'm going to get through this. And so we strategize and we problem solve it and we have a whiteboard session and we drink a lot of Red Bull and we do whatever we need to do. And we're just like, I'm going to get through this no matter what because I've got the internal resources to make this happen. And what tends to happen? That's good for about 24 hours, right? And then you, you crash and burn and it just gets hard and you realize, actually, I don't, I'm not as strong as I thought. I'm not as powerful as I thought I was. I don't have all of this internal strength. I've kind of convinced myself I do, but I don't, I don't have a lot in and of myself that is going to get me through this. And it's just amazing how slow we are in these situations to turn to the Lord, isn't it? I mean, I'm amazed. I look at my own life. You know, like I'm a pastor and I am incredibly slow sometimes to turn to God. I want to do everything else sometimes before actually coming and having a conversation with God about it. And the first thing I want to do is make sure I've spent a lot of time worrying. <laughs> first, that's the like, priority number one. Let's worry. Spend good time. Have I worried enough? Need a little bit more time. Do that. And then I want to talk to a whole lot of people, get the advice, all of this. And then I want to kind of try and give myself a big pep talk. And then maybe last on the list, you know, I might actually bring this thing to God and talk to Him. And even then, I mean, I'm ashamed to say, sometimes it is just kind of an obligatory prayer or a perfunctory sort of prayer. It's not really deeply involving God in my circumstance. And if I can be like that, I'm guessing possibly you can be like that too sometimes. Yes, can we be a little slow sometimes to bring these things to God? And all the while, God is, is standing there saying, I want you to trust me. He's saying, you've got this choice. You're going to trust Assyria or you're going to trust me. Where's your faith? Ultimately, times like these, times like this in our world will reveal to us the character and quality of our faith. As God says to us, will you trust me deeply? Because he says, hey, I've given you a sign. You know, God's given us the same sign, hasn't he? As he gave Ahab. In fact, he's given us a better one. He's given us the real Emmanuel, the true. I mean, Isaiah had that sign in his day and there was some child that was born. But we know, we get over to the Gospels and we read the Gospel of Matthew, who describes to us the birth of Jesus. And as he describes Mary becoming pregnant by the Holy Spirit, he draws back on this exact verse in Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and his name will be Emmanuel. And in that case, it is an immaculate conception. In that case, this is a full-blown miracle. And we have Jesus of Nazareth, our Emmanuel, 
And Jesus came to us not just to show us that God is with us in some generic sense. Jesus is God with us, right? I mean, he's the living embodiment of God. This is not just like I'm showing you something about God. Jesus is God. He's the flesh and blood incarnation of God. He said to see me, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Simple as that, one to one. You want to see God, look at the face of Jesus. He is our Emmanuel. And even now, we don't have Jesus on earth physically anymore. He's ascended to heaven. But what has he left us? Who has he left us? His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, poured his Spirit out upon his followers so that now, if you belong to Jesus, you still have Emmanuel. Is that right? You have Emmanuel living within you by the Holy Spirit. So that promise all the way back here in Isaiah thousands of years ago is now fulfilled in your life today if you're a believer because you have God with us. God with you, the Spirit of Christ. You have today, as you sit here, the crucified and risen one right there with you. He is with you. He is alongside you. He is carrying you. And that's why we can trust in Him. Because God is with us. And as we face these situations of uncertainty, as we face these situations of anxiety, God has said, this is the one thing that is constant. You're going to live in a world, and this is going to happen, when things seem to be coming apart, when things seem to be unstable, things that you've trusted are no longer able to be trusted. But God said, here's the one thing that you can always, always count on. Emmanuel, I am with you. That will never change. It will never, ever change. God doesn't say, I'm going to rescue you from trouble. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you some path around the storm. No, he says, storms may come. He says, things may fall apart. Things may get very shaky. They may get worse before they get better. But God says, here's the promise. In the midst of the storm, I am with you. I am right there. I am in this. I am with you and I'm not going anywhere. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God will never abandon his children. He'll never forsake his promises. He'll never turn his face away from you. He is with you and he is for you and his face is towards you. That's what enables us to trust. So in these situations we face, what God invites us to do is invite him in to these situations. I've experienced this personally. One of the, one of the struggles I've had over the last few years is with anxiety. And, I've, and I know many of you have struggled with anxiety and it's different forms and different ways. And for me, it's come and gone. Different circumstances have brought it on. But sometimes it's the middle of the night and it's, you know, we can't sleep. And then my heart starts racing and you feel that tightness in your body. And then you can't sleep even more. And then I worry about that even more. And there's just times that I've gotten up and just been, had that sense of despair. And it's a horrible thing, you know, because it's the middle of the night and everything's worse in the middle of the night, Right. In the cool light of day, these things never seem so bad. But in the middle of the night, it's like the end of the world. That's when anxiety can really be difficult. But one of the things I think God's been teaching me in all of this, one of the things God's been saying to me in all of this is, I want you to invite me into this. And it's changed the way that I've responded to anxiety. Because it used to be very much me praying, God, take it away, take it away, take it away. I want you to remove the anxiety. Now it's much more me saying, God, I want to invite you into it. I want to invite you to, because if we believe that he is Emmanuel, then we've got to believe he is with us in the midst of these experiences. 
And so I want to make that real by saying, Jesus, I feel this awful anxiety and I want to invite you right into the middle of it now. And the best way I can describe that is that it, it doesn't always take away the feelings of anxiety, but it transforms the experience. It transforms the experience. And strangely, I don't even know how to describe it, but strangely, there can even be a peace in the midst of anxiety. Is that even possible? It's a paradox. But somehow, God gives us, I think that's what the scriptures mean by a peace that transcends understanding. It's like it's not natural and it doesn't make sense. You can't, doesn't even. But somehow, there is a peace to be found even in the midst of anxiety because Jesus is with me in that. Doesn't mean I'm never going to feel those anxious feelings, but it means they are transformed because I know that right here in the midst of it is the crucified one. He's here. And that changes everything. And maybe this is what God's saying to you this morning. In whatever struggle it is that you're going through, God is saying, I, I want stop praying for a minute that it would just go away and try inviting God into it. Into your grief into your loss, into your depression, into your fear, into whatever it is that you're going through. Jesus, I believe you're Emmanuel. You're already with me. I just want to know that. I want to sense that. I want to pray that you would just come right into the middle of the situation and you may just find. It doesn't remove all the troubles, but it transforms the experience because you know that Christ stands with you. As we go on this journey of trust, we learn, we begin learning what it means to trust God. One of the things that will happen for you is that you're going to come face to face with what you really believe about God. This always happens when God starts teaching us to trust Him. You start to have to confront your underlying assumptions about God, who you think He is, what you think He's like. Let me read you an extract from the book called The Shack. It came out a number of years ago. And it's, it's a novel about uh, the main character is Mackenzie, and he, he's lost his daughter, uh, tragically. And the, the story is really an encounter between him and God, as God journeys with him through his grief. And this passage is, is the voice of God speaking to Mackenzie. The real underlying flaw in your life, Mackenzie, is that you don't think I'm good. If you knew I was good and that everything the means, the ends, and all the processes of individual lives is all covered by my goodness, then while you might not always understand what I am doing, you would trust me. But you don't. Mackenzie, you cannot produce trust just as you cannot do humility. It either is or is not. Trust is the fruit of a relationship in which you know you are loved. Because you do not know that I love you, you cannot trust me. It's very searching, isn't it? See, trust is based on a relationship. You can't just conjure it up. You can't just say, I'm going to try really hard to trust God. You think of the relationships you have with the people closest to you. It depends on you knowing them and knowing that they love you. And you know someone loves you. You know someone's got your good at heart. You know someone's fundamentally supportive of you. Then you can trust them. But if you don't have those convictions, if you don't believe that about that relationship, it's going to be very difficult for you to trust. God says it's the same thing. Trust doesn't exist in a vacuum. It is the fruit of a relationship. It comes out of fundamentally believing that I am good. These are the things we need to be challenged by. Fundamentally, do you believe that God is good? Basic question, but just ask yourself, do you believe God is good? Not just sometimes, not just when life is good, but all the time. 
Do you believe that God is with you? Even now, even when you can't feel him, even when he seems a billion miles away, do you believe that he is with you? Do you believe that he is for you? Even when it seems like he's against you sometimes, seems like he's punishing you, seems like he's closing doors, seems like he's leading you down a path. Do you believe that he is for you? Do you believe that he loves you deeply? If you're having a hard time trusting God, it may be because one of those convictions underneath has gotten shaky for you. And there's something deep, deep, deep down below the surface where you're not really convinced that God is good. And so you're wanting to trust, you're wanting to reach out and you believe Emmanuel and all that, but fundamentally, do you believe that he loves you with an everlasting love? If trust is not coming naturally to you, I'd encourage you to go back to some of those deep underlying assumptions about God and ask yourself where you stand with those. Perhaps come back to some scriptures that speak to you of those fundamental truths of God's love and his goodness, that he is for you and not against you. Soak yourself in those scriptures. Build those, allow him to build those convictions deeply into your life because as that foundation is built, that's the ground out of which trust will naturally grow. Got time for one more story, and then I'll stop talking. Charles Spurgeon was a, a well-known pastor and preacher in the 19th century in London. Preached to, to huge crowds and very full churches a lot of the time. And uh, early in his career, Charles Spurgeon was preaching one morning in a full congregation. And some stupid person in the congregation yelled out, Fire! just as a hoax. And there was a massive panic, massive stampede to the door. And in that stampede, eight people were killed. Another 28 people were seriously injured. And then to make it worse, the local newspapers turned on Spurgeon and blamed him. And it just broke him. It just totally broke him. It broke his heart. It broke his mind. And it launched him into a huge depression that he never fully came out of. For the rest of his life, as, as people have studied Spurgeon, the rest of his life is marked by an ongoing struggle with depression. And he often spoke and ministered from a very, very low place, a place of real sorrow. But he continued preaching and had an amazing ministry for many, many years. And he often spoke out of that place of struggle, but he was able, even in the midst of the darkness in his heart, to keep on pointing people to the God who is good and who is faithful and who loves them with an unfailing love. Let me read you just one extract of one of his messages, and we'll finish with this this morning. He says, there is one who cares for you. His eye is fixed on you. His heart beats with pity for your woe. And his omnipotent hand shall yet bring you the needed help. He has never refused to bear your burdens. He's never fainted under their weight. Come then, soul, be done with fretful care and leave all your concerns in the hand of a gracious God. He's not saying those just as words. That was his journey. That was his life. And he had to wrestle hard with what that meant and learn to receive God's love and goodness, even when he experienced the dark night of the soul. So we know that God is good. We know that he's in control, even when the world seems out of control. But we still face, every one of us faces today, that same choice Ahaz faced. Are we going to trust God? Or are we going to trust Assyria? Our own Assyria, whatever that may be. Are we ultimately, where is our trust ultimately placed? Do we ultimately place our faith in people? Do we ultimately place our faith in world leaders? Do we ultimately place our faith in the share market? Do we ultimately place our faith in healthcare? Or do we ultimately place our faith 
in the sovereign God who holds the whole world in his hands? This is the, the question that he invites us to answer this morning. Will you trust me? Will you place your faith in me? Because as Isaiah said to Ahaz, if we don't stand firm in our faith, we're not going to stand at all. We're going to be blown away by the winds of society and culture. We need to stand firm in faith, stand firm in trust, because God is with us. He loves us. He is good to us. And he is inviting us to bring all of our burdens, all of our cares, all of our concerns, and cast them fully on him, because he cares so deeply for us. That's what he invites you to do this morning. Cast your cares on me, says the Lord, because I care for you. Let me pray. So God, we come to you this morning and we acknowledge, Lord, we find it so hard sometimes to trust in you. We're so easily shaken by things that go on in our lives, by things that go on in our world. And right now, Lord, there's some here who are just feeling shaken to their core. And we know these things are natural, God. We feel this way. We have these experiences. Life is hard. But God, we pray this morning that you would lift up our eyes. Lord, as your word says, that you would be the lifter of our heads. You would be our glory. You would be a shield around us. You would be the one that lifts up our heads to be able to see this world as you see this world, to see reality as you see reality, God, to know that you are the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see the end from the beginning. You're the Alpha and the Omega. You're a God who was one day going to bring about a world with no more sickness, no more death, no crying, no pain, no nothing, no disease, because all things will be made new. And we look forward to that day, God. We long for that day. We say, come, Lord Jesus, come and make this world new. Come and make all things new. But as long as we live within this broken world and we have these broken bodies that are subject to decay and illness, God, we want to pray that you would help us to be people of trust. Help us, Lord, to make the decision Ahaz could never make, that we will say, my trust is in you, God, not in anyone or anything Lord, and we'll draw on all the resources you've given us. But ultimately, we want to say, God, our trust, our faith, our hope is fully in you. And we want to come back and say, God, thank you for the sign of Emmanuel. Thank you that you haven't left us abandoned, but you are with us now. You're with us today. The spirit of Jesus is here. You don't ask us just to trust you from a distance, but you draw so close to us. You stand beside us and you carry us. We thank you that we can trust you because you're right here with us, defending and protecting us every step of the way. So Lord, we love you. We commit ourselves into your care. We commit our world into your care and all the craziness that's going on around us at the moment. We thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are still on the throne, reigning and ruling over this world that you have made. Help us to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. 
Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.